Honesty. What? Integrity. What do you think of? Honor. Honesty. Trustworthy. Forthright. Pardon me? Reputation. Consistent. I forget. Ethics. Okay, honesty, consistency, ethics, and what else? Character. Okay. Reliability. Reliability. Good. Hopefully, as we've gone through this series, we've uh, been challenged to understand that integrity. I'm so glad no one said sincerity. <laughs> I just, oh, that was, I was like, I was one thing I was, I was hoping wouldn't come up, because we've learned that sincerity is not a real good definition of integrity, because the sincerest people do some of the dumbest and most wrong things that you could imagine in the world. So to be sincere doesn't mean to, to have integrity. In fact, we've come up with a definition that sincerity, I mean integrity, sincerity is worthless and a waste of time to even consider. But integrity is consistently living a life that's pleasing to God, continuing to do so, trusting the Lord in His ways, despite the circumstances and pressures that come from a hostile environment. An environment around us does not like the way God does things. And so if you're going to live a life that's pleasing to God, basically everything we do in a nutshell boils down to this. You either please God or please people. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. You either apply the truth or you accommodate the crowd. That is what we're challenged to do every time a decision comes up in our life. Will we accommodate the masses or will we apply the truth of the Word of God? That's what we're here to discuss this morning. And the Bible tells us in James 1:22 and following that the Word of God, the Bible, is like a mirror. That it's the most perfect reflection of who we are as people before God. It is an objective standard to take a look at. And so as we look in the Word, it's like looking in a mirror. And we get, begin to see what God sees in our life. So as we're looking at integrity or character in our own life, we, become, we begin to filter or funnel everything through this book to make us more aware of what God sees in our life. So it's an objective standard. So when we talk about integrity, we begin to realize it's not what we believe in our heart that makes us have integrity, but it's what God sees in our life as we filter it through his book here, the Bible. And so a lot of us like to think of integrity kind of like art. You know, everybody's got an, an, an interpretation of art. They stand there and they go, ooh, ah, uh, this is what this means to me. And uh, so we carry that forth into the rest of the areas of our life, and you stand there and you look at a painting. And what, what's always amazing to me, and it seems like art forms always take on this, this approach, but you and I stand there, we look at a painting, and uh, we've got eight different uh, interpretations of what it means. But if you go back to the artist and ask him why he painted this or what he had in mind when he painted it, then he'll give you a definite answer. The question then becomes, well, wait a minute, if he had a definite answer of why he did what he did, then why is it now subject to all of our interpretation of what we think it means to us and what did he really mean when he did it? You follow what I'm saying? So, we carry it forth. It's like the story. Here's the story. I want you to tell me what your response would be. How would you interpret the scene? Okay? There's a, uh, a Czechoslovakian, a Russian officer, a little old lady, an attractive young woman. They're riding on a train. The train goes through a dark tunnel. Shortly after it enters, the passenger heard a kiss, then a loud slap. What happened? Okay? Here's what happened. 
The girl thought, isn't that odd the Russian tried to kiss the little old lady and not me? The old lady thought, that is a good girl with fine morals. The Russian officer thought, that Czech is a smart fellow. He steals a kiss and I get slapped. The Czech thought, perfect. I kiss the back of my hand, clout a Russian officer, and I get away with it. Now, you, say, you go, how would you interpret the scene? Every one of them were sincere in their interpretation. But there was only one. See, there's only one truth. There's only one absolute. There's only one standard. But as you go through the dark tunnel, we begin to have all our own interpretation of what we believe or what we think as it applies to our life. And guess what? There isn't room in God's program for more than one interpretation. God's standard is absolute. It's perfect. And that's the way that God then weighs us. Regardless of what you may feel of what took place in the dark tunnel, this is what actually happened. So when God looks at each one of us, he measures us through this book right here. See, that's the standard he uses. So now as we get into what we talked about last week in Daniel chapter 5, we begin to realize that Belshazzar, though he may have been a great guy in his own little circle, in particular in his own little mind, he may have been a super guy. He may have thought he had integrity. He may have been the most sincere person that ever walked the face of the earth. But the problem was he wasn't measured up against what he thought, but he was measured up by what God objectively saw in his life. And it was all funneled through here. So if you turn to Daniel chapter 5, we'll pick up where we left off because we've got a lot of things to do. The last time we looked at uh, Belshazzar here in uh, Daniel chapter 5, We begin to see a little bit about his background. Uh, Belshazzar, we believe, was the great-grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, as a result had inherited the throne after a succession of other kings that had taken the throne before him. Um, a lot of these guys were worthless, and there's been a long period of time that went in between Nebuchadnezzar's reign and now Belshazzar's reign. And in Daniel chapter 5, we're introduced to him for the first time. And so as he was going through this transition period in his life, he finds himself in a bit of a turmoil. Um, he's new at his position, and like anybody who's new in their position, there's a lot of responsibilities that are ahead of him that he's not sure whether he's worthy of, that he's capable of, and what he's going to do about it. And, pro and uh, not only that, and if it's not bad enough for all the problems that he had internally, he also had problems outside of the wall because a, a couple of groups of people called the Medes and the Persians decided to form a joint venture and uh, with the express purpose of taking over the world, of which the kingdom of Babylon was part of it. So the Medes and the Persians were outside of the wall. Belshazzar knew it, and as we'll see as we go through this account here, that they were not only outside of the wall making plans, but they were visibly close enough that they were outside of the wall so that people in the wall knew what was going on. So Belshazzar has problems within the confines of his kingdom, and also now the enemy is, is now uh, approaching uh, his border, and he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to handle it. So he handles it like everybody in the 20th century has handled it. And uh, whenever they've got a problem and they don't know how to deal with it, they turn to booze and they turn to drugs and they turn to parties and they turn to some way to avoid their problems. Or, sure enough, hopefully that by turning to the alcohol and the drugs and other things, it'll give them now the false sense of confidence that they can proceed with the task that's ahead of them. So he didn't do anything different than a lot of people today are doing, and that is he turned to drugs and he turned to booze and he had a big party and tried to pretend there was nothing wrong in his life. The kingdom's falling apart, it's getting attacked on the outside, it's falling apart internally, so let's have a party and let's all get ripped. 
So Belshazzar then has this big party, and you find it in verses 1 through 4. And throughout this party, what he does is he begins to dance around the kingdom with the ye old lampshade on his head and uh, starts to try to exude confidence about what was going on, and he wanted people to follow him, and everything was going to be okay. Well, everything's not going to be okay. So, and after he has a few beers in him, he decides that uh, not only can uh, he have the confidence himself, but he begins to mock all of his conquests in the past. So he goes and he says, hey, look, you know what? We, we beat the Jews. We conquered them. Not only did we conquer them, but their God is worthless now. And not only will we brag about that, but we'll stand and dance on the top of the wall and we'll let all the Medes and the Persians know there's nothing they could do to hurt us because we've got this invincible empire that we're now running. So he makes a mockery of his enemies, as many people, you know, you see somebody get drunk, that's the first thing, it's like, it's a, you know, it's like the first thing that comes out. You know, you want to make a mockery of all those things that are troubling you. And that's exactly what he did. Well, God has a problem with being made a mockery of. And suddenly he appears on the scene, as God often does when people mock him and ridicule him. So he is there, and in chapter 5 we pick it up and we see what's going on. Um, but the question that I have for you is, as we go through this, we're going to pick this account up in, uh, in, in verse 17. But they have the problem, the hand appears on the wall, and it begins to write a message. Party stops instantly. Everybody looks, because it's not every day that you have, I mean, like after you get ripped, you may, you may see like elephants and you may see other things and, you know, you may see one thing, somebody else may see something else, but the problem was everybody is ripped and they all saw the same thing, they saw this hand writing in the wall. Definitely stopped things cold in its tracks. Belshazzar has a problem. Not only does he turn white and does he get pale and does his knees start to knock and does he get faint, but he screams for help and he calls for his advisors, come in, help me figure out what's going on because I don't know what's going on. Tell me what it is. His advisors, these great advisors, these uh, drain on the overhead structure that he set up, don't know what's going on. And once again, third time in a row, they say, I don't have a clue what's going on. Uh, we don't know what's going on. Belshazzar got whiter than white. The queen came in and said, what's all the ruckus? And they told him what was going on. And she said, well, wait a minute. See, and the queen was probably Nebuchadnezzar's wife. So she said, wait a minute, I remember a guy in the kingdom a long time ago. Daniel's probably been in the kingdom now for about 60 years. So he's about 75 or 80 years old. When he was first brought to Babylon, he was about 15. So the interesting thing to me about it is from the time he's 15 to the time he's 80, he demonstrates nothing but consistency in his life. So as you yell out, as we define integrity, consistency is one of the most important uh, characteristics of integrity. A consistent walk with God from 15 to 80. So she said, I remember this guy. He used to know all these things. Anytime something weird came up like this, we could go to him because he had an extraordinary spirit in him. He had the spirit of the living God in him. There was something different about him than every other advisor that we went to. It would seem like when we went to other advisors, their advice never panned out. But every time we went to him, he was always right. And it was amazing because he was, he was just as smart at 15 as he is now at 80. So he has this wisdom that was consistent. Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, how could you, I mean, how could you know that? You don't have the experience. You don't have the years behind you. You haven't gone through it. How could you possibly know what I'm going through? Hey, you know what's great? I don't have to go through it, and I don't even have to get older to know what God has to say about it. That's the greatest thing in the world. The greatest equalizer in the world for experience is, is to all be plugged into the Word of God. God says it. He transcends all of it. He stands on the outside looking in and says, Look, I'll, I can give all of you equal wisdom in every area of your life. You don't have to be blown away because somebody has a degree in a, speci a specific area. You can be just as wise as I am because I can give you my wisdom. 
So Daniel is a wise guy from the time he's 15, and I don't mean smart aleck like a 15-year-old as we know today. He was a wise guy, and he was wise all the way through his life. So he was going to interpret what was going on, and so they call him in. Verse 17, Daniel now comes into the scene, all right? But before we get to that point, have you ever had somebody ask you a question that you know the answer is going to cause a problem? Have you ever had somebody ask you that? It's like, men, have you ever had your wife ask you, I haven't, somebody shared this with me, it's a great illustration, I'm going to use it. <laughs> have you ever had your wife ask you about the outfit that she has on, does this outfit make me look thinner? Does this, take it easy. D does this outfit make me look younger? Huh? Did you ever have anybody, did, anybody? Am I the only person in the world that has somebody that I know that has had their wife asking that question? All right? Now, okay, good. You know somebody? Good. We all know somebody. And what's so funny is we all know one another here, and uh, the possibility exists that maybe it's one of us in here who is raising our hand saying it's somebody over there. Have you ever had somebody ask you a tough question like that? It's like the first thing you think of, is this a trick question? <laughs> Wait, now let me see if I can answer this right. Um, yeah, it does make you look a lot thinner. No, that doesn't work too well. Because then it assumes that for a moment that she must not be thin to begin with to be a lot thinner. So you don't want to say a lot thinner. You say, uh, it makes you look um, just as beautiful as God made you. <laughs> or do you ever have a new mom ask you, isn't our baby beautiful? What do you, you run through your mind. You say, uh, uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, what, what exactly is it that we're talking about here? Because physically you're going... So it's, you know, a trick question. So you know sometimes when you're asked a question that the answer is going to cause a problem, right? You've been there. Now, let me take it one step further and even make it more difficult. Have you ever been in a position where someone's going to ask you a question and the question they're going to ask you, the only way you can answer it is going to bring up a spiritual discussion? Huh? You ever been there? Huh? What do you do? Do you uh, accommodate their views of things? Because you know what they are. Do you apply the truth about what it is? What do you do? It's great. Jeff's in town. We had a chance to go out last week uh, in the afternoon and go golfing. And uh, so we were golfing, and, um, and he got to ride with his brother-in-law, and I got to ride with somebody I don't know. And, um, but I thought that was okay because he needed to spend quality time with him. And uh, so we were riding, and this guy, uh, you've heard of uh, uh, low net, low gross, gross. The guy I was riding with is just gross. And, uh, and, and it was, I mean, and a lot of times it's because it's like if somebody knows somebody's an athlete, they think that they should talk like they're in a locker room all the time. So this guy was going through it. And finally, the question comes up that usually comes up when we're together and people don't know who we are because they may think I'm just a s slow, white athlete. <laughs> and they say, well, you know, how do you guys know each other? Oh, yes, uh, we play together. I mean, it's like... <laughs> You know, so that's never a problem. So, so the problem comes up then, how do I answer this question? Now, here's a guy, he's just been, I mean, this guy has been just totally gross, and we're only on the third hole. And uh, so he asked me a question. Hey, so how do you guys know each other? Now, see, do I accommodate this guy, or do I apply the truth? That's the question I got to deal with. I know if I apply the truth, we're going to enter now into the spiritual dimension. And uh, this gentleman was not exactly into the spiritual thing at the particular point in time but he was about to be entered into the spiritual dimension. And so he said, how do you know each other? I said, well, uh, actually we met about five years ago when I was teaching a Bible study that they were involved in, in, in a, on the ram. And he goes, 
<laughs> said, oh, uh, Bible study. I said, yeah. And uh, gets out and he had a bad shot and said something about it. <laughs> Got back in and, and, you know, now we're at this spiritual dimension. And the scary thing was, he goes, oh, Bible study. Well, hey, my wife and I, we, uh, we lead a Bible study on Friday nights. And I said, oh, I'm sitting next to a chameleon. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> waiting for the old tongue to come out. Oh, I did notice that when we stood on the fairway, I couldn't see him. He blended right in. So, um, but anyway, it was it was a, just a frightening afternoon, and uh, so we got into that a little bit, and that was great. All it requires to lead a Bible study now in Orange County is that you are a member of a church. Um, so it was really interesting. But um, anyway, make a long story short, and then I told Jeff about this. He went, what? So he goes, hey, he's yelled to me when he was over there on the green. He goes, hey, Chuck just told me you teach a Bible study. <laughs> yeah, what, what do you teach on? And we still don't have any idea yet, but <laughs> we don't know. It was, it was rather interesting. But the point is, the point is this. You've been there where you know that the answer to the question is going to lead you in a direction that you're not sure that they're going to want to go. And you know what? you're not even sure that you want to go there. You ever been there? Because you don't know whether or not you can answer the questions. You don't know enough about what you believe that you feel confident enough to be able to address the question. Or you are under the understanding that it's okay just to live it, you don't have to live it. It's a private thing, and I know the older people that are here, I mean, you've grown up with that. It's a, it's a private thing. Uh, we don't talk about it. it. You know, it's between me and God. We shouldn't vocalize it, verbalize it, or in any way make anybody know what it is about us that would make us different. So we don't say anything about it. You've been there, I know it, and you're going to be there for the rest of your life here on earth. People are going to ask you a question, and you're going to have a choice to accommodate them. Second, it just blew them off. I, I didn't even have to get into it, didn't have to deal with it. I just said, oh, we've been friends, we've known each other for a while, just friends and family, whatever. Huh, that would have ended it, wouldn't it? Conversation would have stopped, and that would have taken care of it. Huh, spiritual danger would have been avoided. Wouldn't have had to get into that territory. Palms wouldn't have had to sweat. Wouldn't have had to think about what I really believe, about what I th say that I believe. Wouldn't have to deal with it. Don't you? Boy, they're always hanging out on the golf course, huh? Oh, Sunday, well, I don't even want to get into the old Sunday morning golf and worship God combination specials that we're running <laughs> uh, <laughs> around the county. Yes, uh, three days, two nights, 18, 36 rounds of golf and worship God simultaneously. It's a wonderful experience. Although I do notice that golfers bring up the Lord's name quite a bit. <laughs> anyway, how do you handle these questions? You know, how do you, how do you handle a question? What does Daniel do? When he's brought into the scene and says, hey, we want you to tell us what this means. What does he say? What does he do? Does he say, hey, you know what? I haven't been around for a while. You know, I used to be hanging around here when Nebuchadnezzar was a king, and now it's been probably 25 years, and, you know, I've been, I've been out to pasture, and I haven't been really involved in this anymore, and, you know, I just, I, I really, I'm not involved. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it says. Thanks for calling. Help you figure it out. Huh? What does he do? Because this is a man of integrity. Hopefully we can learn something from his life. Because you and I 
will be asked the question that will throw the discussion in a spiritual direction. And you've got the choice to run with it or to faint from it. How are you going to handle it? Verse 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. And because of the grandeur which he had bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished to, he killed, whomever he wished he spared alive, and whomever he wished he elevated, and whomever he wished he humbled. But when his spirit was lifted up, and, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like the beast that of the beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler of the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines, have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Many, many, Tekel Parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Tekel you have been weighed on the scales and found deficit or deficient. Parson, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. How do you address the tough question that leads to even more difficult answer? What do you do? What do you say when you know ahead of time before you even say it, will you accommodate them or will you apply the truth? This has got to be one of the most difficult conversations that ever took place. You and I have been there, haven't we? When issues come up about, well, someone that you know, someone in your family, they pass away. Well, I sure hope they're with the Lord now. Do you think that they are? Boy, I sure hope so. They were good people. They sure were good to us. Man, you know what? You don't think that this is caused by what they're doing, do you? You don't think they're suffering from this calamity because of something in their life, do you? Do you think that's possible? Well, no, I know. I don't think so. Oh, I couldn't be. Do you think so? Do you think? Oh, no, I couldn't be. How do you handle it? What do you do? There's no tougher conversation that you and I will ever be in that isn't matched by what Daniel just went through. Tell us what this means. Oh, okay. How do you handle that tough question? How do you address it? Let me give you four things, four, four uh, principles or ways that Daniel addressed this. But before we get into those four steps for addressing the tough question, let me just lay the foundation for you for a moment. Whose message was this? Whose message was written on the wall? 
Oh, it was God's message that was written on the wall. What, what was Daniel's role in all of this? Okay, he, his, his message was merely to what? Read it. Deliver it. Translate it. Put it into a language that they would understand. Now, I'm going to ask you another tough question. When somebody comes to you and they ask you the question that's going to lead into the spiritual dimension, whose message is it that you're about to share? Oh, it's God's message. Oh, you mean it's not something that you believe or something you thought up or something that you think uh, should be, but it's actually what God has to say about it? Well, then why would we hesitate to share the message from God as the messenger? Why do we have a tendency to want to accommodate them by changing the message that God has? We as messengers are merely the deliverer of the message, but we want to change the content of the message because we know the message itself is going to be um, offensive to the person that hears it. So as the messenger, we don't want to deliver it. Uh, case in point, you work for Western Union, and now you've got a telegram that you've got to deliver. You look at the telegram, you read it, and it says basically this, Dear so-and-so, your son John has been killed in action. Signed the United States government. You're the messenger, that's the message. You look at the message and you say, Boy, I think this message is going to be offensive. I think this message is not going to be well received. I don't think they're like what I'm about to say. So as you're on the way to the house to deliver the message, you decide to accommodate them and change the message and you say, got a telegram uh, regarding your son, uh, dear mom and dad, I hope everything's well, I miss you, can't wait to see you soon. Love, John. And you walk away and you feel so much better about yourself because you didn't have to deliver a message that would be offensive to somebody. So you didn't apply the truth, but you accommodated what you thought they wanted to hear. You follow me? Every one of us are tempted to do that when it comes to delivering the message of God. We want to accommodate the listener because you already know the little buzzwords are going to make them offended. You already know what's going to get them uptight about it, so we don't want to deliver the message. We don't want to apply the truth, but we want to accommodate. Daniel had that same temptation before him. He's sitting there going, well, you know what? And here's how we rationalize it. Was this kingdom going to fall? Was Babylon going to fall? It was, very definitely. God had already told Nebuchadnezzar that Babylon was going to fall, that his kingdom was going to be the greatest of the world kingdoms, but it wasn't going to last and there would be successive kingdoms that would come afterwards. The kingdom was already going to fall. Daniel already knew that. So what he began to do was say, look, whatever God wants is going to happen anyway. Whatever God does is going to be the way God does it. So, I mean, why should we even get involved in it? Because that's the way God is and whoever's going to be saved is going to be saved. And why should we share with somebody? Because we don't really know who God chose and who he didn't choose, even though the Bible says he wishes for all to be saved, but he knows not everybody's going to be saved. Not everyone's going to accept the message. So we don't know who is and who isn't. So, hey, you know what? I don't think I want to be involved in all this. Plus, I know if we have this conversation, it's going to be offensive and we're going to make people uptight and the relatives are going to get a little uptight because basically what we're going to say is, based on the Word of God, what they believe is wrong. So we don't want to get any tension in our lives, now do we, and stress. We don't need that because we'd have to go and get one of those books in the bookstore to help you to deal with stress. So we don't want to do that. So as a result, we change the message and we don't even want to deal with the message. And that's probably the greatest area that I see that we begin to accommodate people in our lives as Christians. We don't want to say what God has to say about it because we know the world doesn't want to hear it. 
That is no different. That hasn't changed. In fact, turn with me for a moment to 2 Timothy. And I want to just share a couple things. Because we've got to lay the foundation. What gave Daniel the confidence to be able to now share the message with the people that needed to hear it? What gave him the ability to do it? Why was he so confident that what he was about to say was the right thing to do? And that's really the issue. And in 1 Timothy, if we take a look at 1 Timothy, look at uh, chapter 2. Or 2 Timothy, I'm sorry. 2 Timothy chapter 2. That was good because some of you haven't seen 1 Timothy for a while, so we got you to go through there, didn't we? 2 Timothy 2.15. Yeah, it was close. It was one of the five T's. Okay. Verse 15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Jump ahead to 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, correct, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside the myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Men and women, each one of us in here have the same responsibility that Daniel would, and that is to, to uh, present ourselves before God, an approved workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, to accurately handle the word of truth, to not accommodate the views of the majority, but to be able to apply the truth of, of the minority. In this case, it's God Almighty. He is a minority in our world today. His views are the minority views. His people are the minority people. And uh, we've got to be able to present ourselves before him accurately handling the word of truth. People will not want to hear what you're about to say. And if you don't believe that, just read Matthew chapter 5 about how they persecuted the messengers of God. Read 2 Chronicles 36 about how they despised them. Uh, they hated them. They persecuted them. Hebrews 11, they put them to death. So, let's use this as our foundation for a moment. What gave Daniel the confidence to be able to share the message of God? It was he understood that he was merely the messenger and it was not his message. He had no rights to change it. It wasn't his position to change it. Just like it isn't for a Western Union telegram deliverer to change the message that's in that telegram, we have no right to change the Word of God to accommodate the views of the people that are around us. When the question comes up that throws it to a spiritual realm, you and I better know the Word of God that tells us that we should be able, that it, it's profitable for teaching. Sound doctrine. What God feels about things, says about things, wants the way the things to be. To be able to reprove them, to correct them, to say where you're going is the wrong direction according to what God has to say about it. You need to turn from that and go this way to accurately handle the word of truth. See, Daniel didn't have a problem presenting the message because he knew he was the messenger. He didn't pen it. He didn't write it. It wasn't his opinion, and it wasn't subject to change because of what he felt about it. He realized this is it, and that's all there is, and that's what I'm going to share. Like it or leave it. It doesn't matter. God gives you the choice. So now go back to the text in Daniel 5 and realize 
that that is how he's about to now enter into this spiritual conversation. He didn't have a problem sharing it because it wasn't his idea. It was God's. So as we share the gospel with somebody, we shouldn't have a problem to say, look, you know what? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Well, that's pretty narrow-minded, isn't it? Yeah, and it's about as narrow-minded as Daniel's interpretation of what God had to write on the wall. See, we have people around and say, Daniel, that's a little narrow-minded, isn't it? Isn't there a little room in that interpretation? I don't see that, and we all stand around this message and look at it like people staring at a piece of art and say, that's not what I see. Do you see that? I don't see that. No, I see this. Oh, okay, well, that's pretty valid, isn't it? And the artist is standing there saying, well, I don't care what you see. This is what it is. It doesn't matter. See, that's why Daniel looked at his responsibility as a messenger of God. I don't care what you see. I don't care how you feel. And that sounds pretty cold and calculated, and it sounds like you don't really have a lot of compassion for people, but I think that we can have compassion for people without compromising the message because the message is probably the greatest message of compassion the world has ever seen. God loves people. Christ died for people. God wants you to be saved. God wants you to put your trust in Christ. God loves you. He cares for you. That's why he does what he does. There's nothing more compassionate than that. And that's the message of God. So in Daniel chapter 5, we go back to here's the message. And uh, we've got to the greatest confusion of our day is changing the truth of, uh, of the word to accommodate one another for fear that we may offend somebody. Oh, heaven, help us to offend our relatives or friends about the truth of the word of God. We don't want to do that. So let's just not even talk about it. So we go through it. What did Daniel do? First thing that he did, look at verse 17, 18. What do you do if you want to share something with somebody? How do you get their attention? First thing he did, first step. Okay, you're now going to have this conversation. You need to know how to handle it. Because a lot of times, you know what happens? You and I are more offensive than the message. Because we get all concerned, we get all confused, and we don't know if what we're about to say is the right thing to do. So, so we kind of like, we get so frustrated, we just grab them and say, if you don't accept Christ, you're going to hell. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just got rattled. I didn't know how to present it in any other way. So we become more offensive than the message. They're going, what? what? Get you. This guy flipped his wagon. So Daniel has got a little more polished, and he knows how to present the truth, handle it accurately, and not send up the defense mechanisms right away. You and I know that. You've seen that. You say something in an unintelligible manner and you see the people that you're talking to, they go like this. And you can't see them anymore. As soon as you say it, you know it. You go, mm, I, didn't, I wasn't sensitive. I didn't do this right. I wish I would have came to this class this morning, this day, to learn these four steps. Step number one. What did he do? Number one, he gained their attention. How can you gain someone's attention when you want to share the truth with them? When you know the truth is going to hurt? How do you get their attention? How do you get the attention? How do you get someone's attention anytime you want to talk to them? Do you talk to anybody, people? Do you talk to anybody? <laughs> this is not a trick question, okay? This isn't, will this outfit make me look thinner? This isn't one of those. This is, how do you get someone's attention when you want to talk to them? How do you do it? Ask them a question. Okay, good. About what? About themselves. You want somebody to talk to you, you ask them a question about themselves, and you'll gain their attention. People love to talk about themselves. Or they like to talk about something of common interest. So you gain their attention, and that's what Daniel did. You know, the first thing he says, look at verse 18. Oh, oh king, 
The Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Talking about his family. Oh, he's talking about my family. Talking about my granddad. Oh, great. Oh, great. I like to talk about my granddad. Let's talk about him. What do you have to say about him? And he went on and said, hey, because of the grandeur that God bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, men of every language feared and trembled before him. Yeah, that's probably runs in the family, doesn't it? And uh, so he goes on. He keeps going. He says, hey, whatever, whoever he wanted to kill, he killed. Whoever he wanted to spare, he spared. Whomever he wanted to promote, he promoted. Whoever he wanted to demote, he demoted. This guy was awesome. This guy's your granddad, isn't he? First thing he did is he gained their attention. You know, this happens all over the place in the Bible by godly men. In Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul used the same approach to gain the attention of the court. Ho! Oh, you guys are something else. I find myself privileged to be here before you. I know there's no one who knows more than you do about what we're talking about, and I couldn't find myself in better hands. And as a result, I know that you'll judge me fairly. You're something else. Well, now let me tell you something. And then he goes on. But first thing he did is he gained their attention. He talked about things that they were interested in. He talked about themselves. He talked about something that would gain their attention, and that's what he did. He grabbed their attention. The second thing that what he did was he presented a principle. He said, oh, by the way, you noticed that when he got a little bit too puffed up, God had a problem with that. See, God has a problem with being second in anybody's life. God has a problem with the fact that you, you know, that your granddad went through and he elevated himself above God. You remember that? It says when his heart was lifted up, his spirit became so proud he behaved arrogantly. Guess what? He was deposed from his throne. His glory was taken from him. And you, being a member of the family, you knew the inside scoop because I got to believe that no one else in the kingdom knew what was going on. They kind of tucked him away. They sent him away on a trip somewhere because they didn't want the kingdom to come unglued because now there was no leadership. So they hit him in a back room somewhere and, and threw in a bale of hay every now and then and fed the guy. And, um, and so he knew what was going on. So he was, he was uh, playing up to the fact Belshazzar had the inside scoop that no one else knew about. He said, you remember your granddad? They stuck him in a room and they fed him hay. Remember that? Remember what God did to him? So he presented a principle that said basically this, your granddad wasn't in charge, God was in charge, and he made sure you realized that. So he presented the principle about what he was trying to share. Then the third thing he did was he applied the principle. He took something like a word picture that they can identify with, and you can picture in your mind, oh, granddad kneeling in the old back room there, grandma throwing him hay, and uh, did this for seven years. Nobody else knew about it. We didn't want to tell anybody about it, but the kids and all the family members knew about it. They knew what was going on. You and I have been there. We've seen it in our own families. You've seen it in your own family yourself where nobody else knows what's really going on in there, but you got the inside track on what's happening. See, that's what happened here. So he then went a step further and he applied the principle. He said, here's the principle. God doesn't like to be second. Here's the principle. God won't put up with it. And here's how he does what he does. You know that. Guess what? He was driven away like a beast until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he sets over it whomever he wishes. Bang. Let's make application now. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all of this. You knew all of this. You're, not, you're with, not without excuse. You have no excuse because you saw what was going on. Now the principle that applied for your granddad is now going to apply for you. God hasn't changed. He deals with people the same way. You follow what happened? So he says, you are guilty of the same thing. You know what's great? God uses us that way all the time. Nathan went to David and did the same thing. 
He applied a word picture and said, oh, gained his attention. David liked to judge. He was responsible for the well-being of the kingdom. He was the judge. He went to him and appealed to him as a judge. Said, this is what was going on. This guy was doing this, this, that, and this. And David said, oh, there's the principle. The principle is this. Oh, okay. And then Nathan went, guess what? Let me make an application to you. You're, you're the man. You're guilty. And he applied it to him. And he nailed him with it. And now Daniel does the same thing. You've got to consider to make application to that person. And the fourth thing that he did was he counted the cost. He went through it and said, guess what? I hate to say this to you, but there is going to be a consequence if you continue in the direction you're going. You follow what, what he's saying? Take it back to your own situation. Somebody asks you a tough question, you're going to have to give them a tougher answer. You gain their attention. You talk to them. You spend time with them. You, you, you get to know them. And then you make an application. I mean, you, you present a principle of God. You apply it to them. And then you have them count the cost. See, what Daniel said was this. You can continue to go the direction you're going, and that's okay. God gives you the free choice to do it. Choice, 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 choice. But it doesn't mean that, the that, that God's going to forget to enact the judgment. Hey, you want to keep living the way you're living? That's okay. You can continue to live the way you're living, even though you and I know your brother or your best friend or so-and-so died as a result of what they were doing, which, by the way, is the same thing you were doing, but you're different because it's not going to happen to you because it never happens to us or anybody we know. It always happens to the other guy. So it's not going to happen to you, you think, but let me tell you something. The same thing that killed him is going to kill you, and you have the choice to continue to go that direction. You got it? It takes away the defense mechanism by tying it to something they can relate to that's not themselves. Help them to see it in the life of another person and it's always easy to see. Then come back to them and tie it to them and then also nail them with the same consequence that are going to happen to them as well. That's what he did. That's what Daniel did in a nutshell. Many, many took Hal Parson. Guess what? Your days are up. Your kingdom's history. And it all has to do with the weighing. Many, many take Hal Parson had to do with the standard or weight of measurement. Guess what that standard or weight of measurement is for us? It's right here. Here's the measurement. Here's the standard. God has placed us in the scale and he has weighed us and he has found us deficient. We're lacking. But he puts it in and we've got a choice. Keep choosing the way you want to go. You're going to be like this. Bring it back into balance and you're like this. God weighs us through this. So as we go through it, we see that that's exactly what he did. Now the problem is, how do we apply it to ourselves? Let me just give you some things on closing, okay? That's how you can approach a person that asks you a tough question, but now how can we apply this as part of our life on a daily basis? Number one, run the distance. The Bible tells us that our life is a marathon and not a sprint. Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, hey, I've kept the faith, I have fought the good fight, man, I've finished the course. Our life here on earth is a marathon and it's not a sprint. Daniel's life was consistent from the time he was 15 to the time he was 80 and he ran the marathon and he paced himself consistently. Anybody that has any background in any kind of sports at all knows the secret of success is consistency. It's to pace yourself, it's to run the race, it's to be consistent in everything that you do. It's not to go out at the blaze of fire, you know, and try to keep up with the competitors, but it's to go out and maintain a consistent pace based on a consistent standard, which is for us the Word of God. 
we will be consistent. We will finish the course. That's the first thing that we've got to realize. If we don't, then we're leading ourselves up to, you know, we see it all the time, just bang, bang, ups and downs, emotional peaks and valleys. You see people around you all the time whose Christian life is like a roller coaster ride. And you look at them and you say, why is that? Because they're not consistent with the Word of God. They make application sometime, then they accommodate sometime. Make application sometime, accommodate sometime, and their life is like this. How many people can you name on one hand that you see that consistently walk with God? We need to be consistent. We need to finish the course. Number two is that we need to remove our price tags. You notice that Daniel said this, hey, you know what? Uh, keep your gifts for yourself. Don't allow anybody ever to accuse you of sharing the message of God for self-gain. Man, you know what? If, the, if, if the, the pulpits across America would just do that, if the television programs across America would, would just do that, we would become a light in darkness as we should be. We would be something, a beacon where people can turn to for truth instead of always trying to cross-examine the motives behind the person that's presenting it. Don't put yourself in a position where anybody could say you compromise the truth because you've benefited from it in some way. Do you apply the truth in a tough situation that may mean you'll lose a promotion? Do you apply the truth in a tough way that may mean that you may even lose your job? 